Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 17. A man came to C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher. He he was a kind of unpredictable man that if you went to see him, apparently there are all these stories about him, but this man went to see him. And uh, this individual was convinced that it was possible for a person this side of heaven to experience full salvation, defined as absolute personal holiness. In other words, along the lines of the Wesleyans, John Wesley, that it was possible on this side of glory to become what we might call perfect, perfectly holy. C.H. Spurgeon reached over, picked up a glass of water, and threw it all over this guy, which the guy lost the place, started to shout at Spurgeon, what are you doing, what are you doing? And Spurgeon said to him, well, I guess you are not quite as holy as you thought you were. Subject tonight is the subject of holiness. It's not one of the most, it's not one of the most cool subjects, I suppose, because we, we, we struggle with it. We all of us do. And as we, we've been studying this prayer of, uh, of Jesus here in John 17, we discover a number of Jesus' priorities for the church. They emerge here and there in the prayer. And this is one of the priorities that we discover. For example, we, we find it first mentioned there in verse 11, the word holy. As the Lord addresses his Father, he's already addressed him as Father. He addresses him on this occasion as Holy Father. And then a little further down in verse 17, he prays for his people, sanctify them. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. And then in verse 19, he says, I consecrate myself. For their sake, I consecrate myself. And what you have to understand is that each one of those words, holy and sanctify, and consecrate, all come from the same root. The root word to sanctify, uh, sanctity, saint, holy, holiness, they all come from that basic root word. And they all have, at one level or another, something to teach us about biblical holiness. Now you see, why is this an important thing? Well, It's because holiness and to be holy is a characteristic of God, of God the Father. It's a characteristic of God the Son. He is the Holy One of Israel. And it's a characteristic of the Holy Spirit. He is holy. He is the Holy Spirit. And it is the characteristic of the Godhead. God in His three persons is supremely holy holy. And it is to be the characteristic of Christians. The writer to the Hebrews uh, says about uh, to Christians that we are to follow after holiness without which no one can see the Lord. Now, I've already introduced the subject of holiness, but the word holiness is often misused. It's used and abused by Christian people. When I lived in London, on my way to church, I would often walk past a building that looked on the outside 
very much like a church building. It wasn't a large building, but it looked like a church building. And over, over the, the door, the rather ornate door, there was written in the stonework this description. The Royal so- or the Ancient Society of Oddfellows. And it was referred to as Oddfellows Hall. I thought that was a great name. I thought that would be a good description of a church. The Ancient Society of Oddfellows. Uh, because uh, I've met a lot of Christians globally and they've all been a bit odd one way or another. But some people have the idea that holiness is all about being a bit odd. Holiness is about being different, being an odd fellow. And there's no doubt about it that some Christians are. Some people think that holiness is about legalism. Legalism, straight legalism, is saying that you get into heaven on the basis of your good works. That's the opposite of Bible Christianity. But there's another kind of legalism. We might say the kind of medium legalism. Medium legalism is a preoccupation not with the law of God, but with how you keep the law of God. And so in this preoccupation, it's not so much with what God says in the Ten Commandments, so much as on our definitions of what that looks like, our simplifications and the rules that go with the simplifying of those uh, rules and regulations that we find in the Bible. And the problem is, of course, in the detail. The more, the more you leave what the Bible says is good and evil, and the more you try to define it and minutely spell out how it is you're doing, the more regulations and rules you manufacture and make, and the more rules you manufacture and make, the harder it is for people to keep them. And you begin to build burdens and place burdens on people that you don't find in the Bible. That's what the Pharisees did. And uh, we can do that too. When I was growing up, we didn't always have a television, but when, when we, in those occasions, we did have a television because my dad would find one and uh, he would try and make it go and it would go for a little while. And uh, we weren't allowed to watch it on Sundays. On Sundays, we could stay at home and we could read books or we could uh, do a puzzle but we were not allowed to go outside and kick the ball. No, that was worldly. But staying inside, playing puzzles, that was okay. Or reading novels, that was okay. So there were these kind of rules and regulations. And the world looking on looks at that and thinks, a bit of hypocrisy going on there. We've got to be very careful that we don't introduce legalism in that medium sense into our understanding of what holiness means. And then to some, and you can imagine some ecclesiastical bodies here, holiness is elitism. You know, sometimes people say, I've heard people come to me and have said to me, I'm no saint but. And then they demolish somebody else's else's character. I'm no saint, but you should hear about this person. And they demolish that person. Underlying the use of the word saint in that kind of context is the notion that a saint is a super-Christian. You've heard of Superman and, more lately, Supergirl, an exciting program series that's on television right now. 
Uh, but some people believe in super-Christian, and that somehow or other they, this, there's a level of holiness that is attainable by mortals that qualifies you to have as your title Saint Edith or Saint whatever. Well, we clear away all of that stuff so that we can focus on what the Bible teaches for a moment about holiness. And in this chapter, we learn, first of all, about the holiness of the Father. You can see that in verse 11, Holy Father. Because holiness is the definitive description of God. Not, the, not just the Father, as we've seen, but God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Holiness is, in, is in fact, not an attribute of God, like love and justice and so on. Holiness is an adjective for God. He is the Holy One. He is the Holy One of Israel. Arguably, the Holy One of Israel is, in fact, the Son of God who revealed Himself to Israel and who came to Israel and led Israel and spoke to Moses and so on. When Isaiah has a vision of the pre-incarnate Son of God in the temple, he hears, the, he hears these angelic beings singing about Him, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of Your glory. God is holy. And if you say that God is thrice holy, you are saying that God is holy to the third degree. He is absolutely holy. Now, the word to be holy or to sanctify comes from a root meaning to cut. Sometimes we say about someone that they're a cut above the average. And... Uh, that's a good use of the word, by the way, because to be holy means to be different. God is supremely a cut above everything else. He is separate from, different from, bigger than everything else. God's love is holy love. God's ways are holy ways. God's justice is holy justice. Everything God does is holy and Scripture uses images like light and fire to illustrate His perfect holiness. He lives in unapproachable light, dazzling, blinding splendor. He is a consuming fire. He is absolutely holy. And whatever God touches becomes holy. His own possession, Mount Sinai, is touched by God and becomes a holy place. You dare not go up without God's invitation. He gives the Ten Commandments. They are His holy law. And in the Old Testament, buildings and vessels and instruments and utensils in the temple were holy. They were only for God's use and God's use, God's prescribed use at all. God is holy. So here's my problem this evening. I am at an infinite moral distance from God. My sin separates me effectively from this holy God, God who is absolutely apart from and above all 
and against me because of my sin. Well, this leads me to the next point. Holiness and the Son. Look down at verse 18, 19. For their sake, I consecrate myself. Here's the Lord Jesus speaking of himself, putting himself aside, sanctifying himself, putting himself to one side in order through his determination to cooperate with the Father, dedicating himself to do the Father's will, offering himself to God in the place of his people. Notice who he has in mind. He's been praying for them. You sent me into the world, and I've sent them into the world, and for their sake, that's who he has in mind, his people, his own people. He goes to the cross, he has his own people in his mind, and he's consecrating himself to the work of the cross. That's what lies ahead of him. Is the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, who's devoted himself entirely to this rescue mission, to coming into the world and taking our humanity, to taking a human nature, to giving himself as a ransom for our sins, knowing everything that he knows about you and me, knowing all our personal history, knowing the best about us and the worst about us, Understanding being driven by the fact that the fall and evil in all its forms have come and broken into the world. And he comes to the Father and he says to the Father, Here I am as the mediator. Here I am as your servant, the servant of the Lord. Here I am in my role as their redeemer. And for their sakes I consecrate. I set myself apart for this work that you've given me to do. I consecrate myself. Here he is as the great high priest, setting himself apart to be the sacrifice, putting himself on the altar to bear our sins and our sorrows and make them his very own and bear the burden to Calvary and suffer and die alone. God the Son setting himself apart to be our Savior. And that's what he does on the cross. That's how he deals with that infinite moral distance between God and me. He puts himself in my place. He bears my sin in his own body on the tree. He sets himself apart. He consecrates himself. He sanctifies himself for the work of my salvation and for your salvation. He dies in my place and secures my salvation and yours for him. This brings me then to the third, to the third thing, holiness and the believer. Sanctify them. I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified, he says. He is coming and praying for his people. Now, what does he mean by to his people to be holy. There's a couple of things that we notice in this passage. He is meaning something that we are already, first of all, that we are set apart. In this passage, he talks about having chosen or having been given these people 
them being possessed by him, verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine. And he comes to the Father and he prays for these people, what they are already. They're already his. God has already chosen these people. The Father has already ring-fenced these people. He has put a fence around them and he said, out of all of humanity, these are mine. They are set apart. They are holy. They are sanctified. They are consecrated. They are my own exclusive possession. And there's a sense in which, therefore, every believer is sanctified already. Which is part why when Paul's writing his letters to the churches, he can say, writing to the church in Corinth, which was the most... What can we say about Corinth? It was the most challenged congregation, the most dysfunctional church in the New Testament. But he says about that congregation, to the saints that are at Corinth... Because already, simply because they've been born again, simply because they've been brought to faith in the Lord Jesus, they are already set apart by God for God. He can write to the Corinthians and he can say this to them. That once they were guilty of terrible sin. Listen to what he says. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or male prostitutes nor homosexual offenders nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor slanderers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that, he says, is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. So you got cleaned up. You were put into one place by God. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You notice how I put sanctification first there. They were taken, they were put aside for God's own possession, and they were put right with God. All that happened in a second, in a nanosecond. But it's part of the process of our salvation. Peter says something similar in 1 Peter chapter 1. You have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit unto obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. If you belong to Jesus, then there's a sense in which you are already sanctified, set apart. Verse 16 in John 17 says... They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Set apart, sanctified. It refers to what we are already. But it also refers to what we are to be. Jesus is saying to his Father, they're already yours, but let let them be even more yours. Let, Let what they are, let the difference in them. Be seen. Let the the holiness, their holiness, be seen so that people can differentiate them from the world and recognize them as belonging to you and belonging to me. Now, notice that when Jesus says that, he does not intend that his people be 
taken out of the world. In fact, he says that over and over again. He doesn't want them taken out of the world, but he wants them guarded and kept while they're in the world. You and I aren't taken out of the world either. We're to be like Jesus. Jesus was a friend of sinners, and he was separated from sinners. He was a friend of sinners. Be friends with the people of the world, but be separated from their sin. Now, what does it mean then that we are to be holy? Well, it means that we are not to conform to the world. Dr. Boyce, when he was preaching on this, I think, because I'm doing this by memory, I think he, he detailed what it is that characterizes the world system. And I think he spoke about the world's agenda. Materialism, for example. The pursuit of personal peace and affluence, at, often at the cost of our relationships and our families. Materialism. Relativism. The, the, the denial of absolute truth. This is right for me. This is right for you. You do what you do. You're right. And I'll do what my right. And it's all purely arbitrary. Relativism. Pluralism. That goes beyond the proper tolerance of others. Goes beyond the proper tolerance of people's self-expression to an intolerance of anyone who disagrees with you or who makes any kind of claim to believe in absolute truth. Tolerance of everybody, but intolerance of those who believe in truth. And then narcissism, a love of self. Comes from the story of the guy who fell in love with his own reflection. Everyone else's happiness is secondary to the pursuit of my happiness. Well, holiness means becoming less and less like the world and more and more like the Lord. How does that happen? Well, this is my fourth point. Holiness and the truth. This is how it happens. Sanctify them in the truth. Verse 17. Verse 19. For their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Here's to be the distinguishing mark of the people of God. What is to characterize the difference of the people of God from the world? Well, it is that we are standing in truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How do we stand remotely distant from the world? What is it that marks us out? Is it, is it our good living? Well, there's people in the world who live a good life. Is it because we've got values? There are people in the world who have values, good values, who are nice, who keep the law, they keep it well. Maybe they keep it better than you do. Maybe they're more faithful than you are. Maybe they're kinder than you are. They're more, more likely to respond to the need of their neighbors than you are. What distinguishes you from them? Here's what Jesus says. What distinguishes you from then is the truth. The truth of God. Now you will, you will find that Jesus says in this gospel that truth sets you free. Free to do what? Free to swim against the current of popular opinion. Free to be God's different men and women. You know there, there are great moral movements in the world. 
who try to make laws that they believe are for humanity's good and which may even conform closely to the law of God. These movements are good. They are especially good in a democratic society like ours. It is the place of good government to uphold what is right and to punish what is wrong. But at the end of the day, all the state can do is negative. It can promote good things, it can punish evil things, but it cannot change a person's heart. Only the gospel can do that. That is the limit of the state's power. The church as the church and the Christian as the Christian must insist that the gospel, the truth of God, actually changes people. We've got to draw a distinction here between our faith in the power of truth and the function of law in society. The function of law in society is to curb bad behavior. The proclamation of the gospel is to create new people who keep the law of God from their hearts, who are changed on the inside. You know, in the 18th century, there was a massive revival that touched both Europe and North America. And it swept through the the peoples of uh, of those two great continents. And it was characterized principally by the preaching of the gospel. It led to masses of people, working class, upper class people, being converted. It had a tremendous impact as tens of thousands of people became Christians. And that great movement of spiritual vitality in life had the effect in the next hundred years of affecting society, both here in North America and especially in the British Isles, but in other parts of Europe as well. It led to social reform. It led to better behavior. It led to the end of the slave trade, for example, in England at the end of the 18th century. It led to a whole number of social reforms. And there was a, there was a shift away from the kind of rough and tough and hard and cynical and brut- brutal society that there had been to a more free, a more caring, a more liberal society that you have at the beginning of the 19th century. How did that happen? Because the church preached the gospel. But you get into the 19th century, and something changes early in the 19th century. The church notices the effect that it's had on society and begins to focus on that. It focuses on reforming society. Soon it's focusing more on social change than it is on preaching the gospel. The outcome of that movement lost the nation's soul and failed to change society. Christianity was never meant to settle for being a movement of social change. That's why the emphasis here, sanctify them in the truth, that they may be sanctified in truth. It is the truth of the gospel that does something far bigger 
What the truth of the gospel does is not so much remove the infection of sin in our lives or put us out of danger of getting infected by sin. What the gospel does is to build up your resistance to infection to such a degree that it enables you more and more to be immune to it. How does it do this? The infectious spirit of the world is all around us. It will remain there until Jesus comes back again. So the business of the church is to expose people to the Word of God. Now, I know that some of you, when you come here, you bring your notepad and you take lots of notes and you try to remember the sermon. Sometime during the week, Helen will ask me for the main points of my sermon on Sunday and invariably I will say to her, I can't remember because I'm into the next one by that stage. It doesn't, do you know it doesn't really matter if you don't remember the particular sermon? Listen, the Word of God works on you subconsciously even. It's working on your conscience. It is washing over you. Jesus talks in this gospel about the washing of the water, of the Word of God. It actually cleanses you. It kind of filters down into your brain and then into your personality and your being. And it kind of shores you up and acts as a kind of disinfectant so that tomorrow when you go out into that polluted world, you have at least an element of disinfection there. You are prepared for it. You have a resistance because you've been inoculated against it because of the word of truth. It has that kind of power. And the business of the church is is to give you the pure milk and the strong meat of the word so that you may be filled with those antibodies of truth that can destroy and attack the infections of the world so that you may stand in the truth and become characterized by the truth and become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not the work of a moment. This is not the work of some blistering moment. In Charles Wesley's great hymn when he prays, Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. He is actually praying for a moment of instantaneous sanctification and holiness where you're perfect here and now. It's an Arminian hymn that we sing gladly in Calvinist churches because we put our own meaning into it. But that's his meaning, that you can have it right now. Finish. Full salvation here and now. No Holiness is not the work of a moment, but the work of a lifetime. It's growing in grace, as Peter says, growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's about growth and development and advancement. And in any church family like ours, there are people at various stages of growth, new Christians. Some people are new Christians and they've been new Christians for the last 40 years. They've just been repeating the same newness every year. They've not really gone any further. There are people like that, I'm sure. 
But it's a growing thing. And sometimes there are great experiences that kind of give you a leg up, that kind of push forward, so that you make a bit more progress this year than you did last year. Sometimes God is pleased to do a bit of surgery on you. You know, sometimes some, so, there are some conditions where the physical growth of a, of a child is impeded and they have to do an operation, a surgical operation, in order to make growth possible. Sometimes God has to do that. The chastisements of life, the disciplines of life, or sometimes God's means by which He operates on us to make growth not unnecessary, but growth possible in our Christian life. So we yield to His hands in those matters. God is passionately concerned for our growth in holiness, and we should be encouraging one another on as we hear the Word of God, these ordinary means of grace. That's the way He does it, through the ordinary means of grace. This is, a, this is an ordinary means of grace church. That's what it's been committed to since the very beginning. We're not into slap, bang, get it all done, because we know it's a long obedience in the right direction until we're welcomed home and we wake perfect in his presence. Father, thank you that you've called us to be holy even as you are holy. And we pray that your word would uh, wash over us tonight, cleansing our minds and hearts, uh, giving us those antibodies of truth that will settle down into our subconsciousness and pervade our being and protect us tomorrow when we're exposed to the infections of sin. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.